in my opinion, we our work-life balance as a society was way out of whack before this. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you're guilty of it, Chris. Yep. I'm guilty of it. I mean, all of our friends are guilty of it, right? And I think that this is proving that there's a way to bring that work-life balance back. And I think that's one thing that we'll get through all this is that there's a way to make to make it work, to get our work-life balance back, which will make us a better community, which makes us a better country. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey guys, it is Chris. Welcome to the Fort. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. Um, I have Will Churchill, the CEO and owner of Frank Kent Car Dealerships, on with me today. Will's in my YPO group. He's been become one of my best friends over the last couple of years. Um, this is also the first episode that we're doing. Uh, since the coronavirus has taken over America. And I think Will will have some really incredible insight as to how he's seeing the world through the automotive industry. He's an entrepreneur that owns several other businesses. We might tap into those today, but really wanted to focus on his story in automotive and kind of how he sees the world right now. So thank you for joining me, William. Absolutely, Chris. I am honored to. It's a uh, it's an extremely interesting time, and uh, you know when, when you and I chatted about this, we were in a much different spot, and then you know a light switch hit, and here we sit. So this should be interesting. Yeah, I, I asked Will to join me on this three weeks ago, and even three weeks ago, the world was a completely different place. Let's just kick it off with um, just a little bit of your story of how you got into automotive, what Frank Kent means to you, and then we'll kind of progress into kind of what's going on today. Absolutely. So I am actually fourth generation into the uh, Frank Kent family. My uh, great grandfather was Frank Kent and uh, came down through my mom's side of the family. So he started, we, we say we started in 1935. The reality of it is we probably started in the 1920s, had a couple other dealerships, but the Frank Kent Motor Company with Ford, we started in uh, 1935 on, uh, in Fort Worth. From there, in 1952, we became a, uh, we gave up the Ford franchise and became a Cadillac dealer. And then when my great grandfather passed away, he uh, passed it on to my mom. And then when my mom passed away in uh, 2005, she passed it on, uh, to my sister and I. So, that uh, makes my sister and I the fourth generation in the uh, automotive business. So, you know, not not an entrepreneur like I founded the business, um, yeah. but, you know, definitely uh, was born into it and uh, have taken it from uh, where we got it in 2005 to a much different place to where we sit in uh, 2020. Did you always know that you were going to get into the automotive industry or did it kind of get forced on you or was it a kind of a dream growing up? You know, it, it, it was a choice. Um, so we have a rule inside of our family that uh, you have to go to college. And then after college, you have to go work somewhere else for three years. And then after you go work somewhere else for three years, you may or may not be invited into the family business. So there is no guarantees that just because you were born into it, that you would be able to uh, jump right into it. So I, when I was in college, I started a couple of um, 
truck accessory concept businesses. Um, and that actually ended up working out really well. Now we have a large distribution business off of that, but you know, it, 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 my, I, it has always been in my family. So I always kind of had a passion for it. Um, but you know, I was born into it, but, um, went to go work somewhere else for uh, a little bit and then I uh, got invited to come back. And so here we are. Uh, you kind of mentioned also, uh, just the, the, it started in 1935 in Fort Worth, possibly 1920. Can you shed any light on what a car dealership would have been like in the twenties or the thirties? Is it kind of the same it is today? Just with obviously. Well, being- when my great grandfather started in the business, he was a salesman and, um, he, he actually started in the clothing business in Missouri, then came down here and, um, was visiting a lady and a, uh, he wanted to sell cars and, uh, for some reason, and the gentleman said, well, if you can sell a car in three days, I'll hire you. And he sold three cars. And at that time he had to train people, they were called horseless carriages. So he was actually in Fort Worth teaching people how to drive while people that had carriages with horses, obviously this new technology was scaring the horses. So he wasn't the most popular person in town. And, um, you know, that, that, so he, so he started at the advent of the car industry, um, when you had to teach people how to drive and these horseless carriages were replacing their mode of transportation that they'd come so fond of. And were, were the brands still the same back then that they are today? Or did he start with a different brand or? Uh, he started with Buick. So, um, you know, the, the brands, what's kind of neat, if you go back and look at the history of the automotive world, um, we pretty much have maybe three brands that have kind of come into the market and stayed. A lot of tried um, in recent history, but yeah. you know, Tesla's one of them. Um, then you've got Lexus, and then you've got Infinity. You know, there's been a lot of other ones trying to come and blow out, but almost all the brands you see today were Genesis in that 19 teens, the 1920s. Yep. And they were conglomerates of, you know, you know, GM bought out a couple of different people. Uh, Chrysler bought out a couple of different people, the Dodge brothers and the Chryslers. And so, you know, but a lot of the brands you see today were from back then. Yep. Give a, give a quick idea to listener of the brands that you currently own and operate. So we currently do uh, all the General Motors portfolio. So that's Chevy, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. Uh, we have uh, multiple Cadillac franchises. We have multiple uh, Chevy franchises. And then we also have a uh, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Ram store. But, you know, in my past, we've represented the Honda brand. We've had the Hyundai brand. We've had Daewoo. We've had just, just about every manufacturer that came to town that went bankrupt, we've had. And uh, the ones that came to town and lasted longer that were fresh or like Lexus Symphony, we didn't have. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of weird that we, we, we chat about that. Like, you know, anytime we go jump on a new brand, we're, we must be like the kiss of death for them. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to be, if you want to take on a brand, I, I'm assuming today it's like you have to prove that you've been successful with other brands and then you get kind of put in line as somebody in town that could take on a brand that's coming to town. Or I'm assuming not anybody can just get into the car business and own a dealership. Yeah, you know, there are some barriers to entry. It's very cash dependent. Um, You know, they've got a huge minority push going right now. So it's a lot easier for a minority to get this. So what what you're referring to is what they call an open point. Right. And so let's say that, um, 
manufacturer XYZ wants to come to Fort Worth, Texas. So people will apply to manufacturer XYZ to uh, take on that franchise. And then XYZ will pick who their dealer is going to be. And in today's environment, it's much more advantageous uh, for minorities to get uh, those open points um, than uh, someone like me that's got the heritage and, um, you know, is in a different spot. So pretty much where we play now is we have to go buy uh, stores from uh, existing dealers. Got it. Um, you know, we have really good franchise laws. So, you know, just because you want a BMW store in Fort Worth doesn't mean you get one. Uh, you can't have one within 15 miles of another one. And the manufacturer has to say, hey, we want to put another one in. Yep. So, it, you know, people ask me all the time, why don't you just go get a, you know, XYZ brand? And I'm like, well, it's not that simple. Yep. So. And then just to continue setting the stage, you also mentioned that y'all are in the accessory and distribution business. Can you just give a little light on on what that is and, and why that's been successful for you? Absolutely. So um, back in uh, 2005, we were approached by General Motors to uh, take on, they wanted GM wanted to get into the accessory business and they read an article about me where I was selected one of the top 40 people in the automotive industry. And the reason I was selected for it was because of a uh, aftermarket accessory push that we had going on and we were looking at franchising it out. And GM came to us and said, hey, we want to get into that space. Uh, you obviously know what you're doing. Can we line up? And so we formed a relationship. They set, uh, we're, uh, they set, um, I think it was 50 distributors up across the U.S. at that time. Uh, they have now pared it down to about 24. And so what we do is we're wholesale only. So we don't work with the retail client. We work with dealerships. And so a dealer can buy their accessories from us or they can buy it from General Motors, same price. But we provide all the expertise and everything and we're set up by General Motors. So we work in protected markets. And so with GM, we have about 75% of the state of Texas. Um, and then as of uh, January one, Ford saw the success we were having with the GM side that they came to us. And as of, um, January one, we now have seven full States and four partial States with Ford doing the same thing. So we, we deal with the dealers. We help them get into the accessory game. We help them learn how to sell accessories to their retail clients, but we do not sell retail. We are strictly wholesale distribution. Got it. All right, I'm going to now pivot into, uh, it's now Wednesday the 25th. Two Wednesdays ago was the day that the NBA decided to renege on their season, which uh, for me, as long as I'll probably, the, the one thing I'll remember through all this was kind of when it first hit me that something big was happening is when I saw that the NBA had shut down. Let me just start. When did you start seeing demand at the dealership, like you usually uh, see, start to drop off. Probably within the last week is when we've seen it. I mean, we're still selling vehicles. The service business is still pretty good. Yep. But the the wholesale market, which is what drives what a vehicle's worth on trade in, right? The bottom has just fallen out of that right now. Um, to, to give you, for example, uh, we were uh, we're one of the largest. Uh, auction um, sellers at uh, Mannheim, Dallas on Wednesday, we usually sell probably 90% of the units we run in the lane. The market average sales today was 30%. 
So they're not bringing money and dealers aren't selling them. So the we're, we're, so when you begin to see that deterioration on the wholesale side, that then comes over into the retail side because a customer comes in and the car that was worth 50000 two weeks ago is now worth 45000 And it takes a while for that to set in. And so the, like a, a new car goes from being 50 to worth 45 because the deals that they can get on used cars are going to keep getting better and better. Yeah, you, you know, there, there, there is push-pull in, in both those environments. Um, what's driving the used car prices down right now is the fact that manufacturers are doing everything they can to sell a car. So they have amped up the rebates. And so anytime you amp up the rebates, that puts downward pressure on the price of a used car because the delta between used and new has to stay at a certain level. So yeah. if they throw an extra $3,000 on a Chevy Tahoe, then your used Chevy Tahoe goes down by $3,000. Because right. if that delta is not there, then the customer will be like, well, why would I buy a used one? Let's go buy a new one. For sure. And and I think I saw a Ford commercial last night. It was like three months interest only or deferral of payment for three months. And then Ford will make your payment for the three months after that. So it's basically you could get like a new Ford. I don't know what Chevy's doing, but you basically don't yeah. make a payment for six months. Yeah. I mean, that they're, they're, they're getting creative. GM's got 0% for 84 months out there. Uh, they've got 120 days of deferred payments. Um, you know, everyone's and everything at this to try and, you know, keep the market as stable as possible. Are cars selling right now? Are, are people buying online? Is it by appointment only? Like, how are you selling a car right now? Well, I mean, that, that that's, Chris, that's probably one of the best questions you could ask because yeah. every six hours it changes. So as of yesterday at all three of my stores, you could just walk in and buy a vehicle, no change. Yep. As of today, if you're in our store in Fort Worth, it is appointment only online um, as dictated by the uh, county judge. And so we try and handle everything over the phone, over the Internet. You can come in and you can handle the paperwork at that point. No test drives are allowed or we bring the car to you and do it all in the comfort of your home. So that's Fort Worth. In um, Navarro County, which is uh, where our Corsicana store is, they have a shelter in place, but they are considering automotive retail sales as essential. So in that store, they are, uh, we're allowed to do retail sales. But this morning, we came up with a plan that mimicked Cadillac's plan to handle, well, Cadillac's plan was all salesmen went home. Right. Um, but now we got new ruling from the judge that allowed this whole online piece of it where they can actually come into the store to finish the paperwork. So now our salesman will be coming back on shifts tomorrow in Cadillac. Corsicana, we were headed down that plan. They got a new ruling from a judge today where automotive sales are allowed. So they will be allowed to sell cars face-to-face. Ellis County, which is where our store in Ennis is located, we are going by Dallas's guidelines which um, is very similar to Fort Worth, which is online only. So we're waiting for more clarification from them. So, you know, when you and I were chatting, I mean, they keep changing the goalposts every six hours and we keep adjusting to them and we're going to do it. You know, we're, as I told someone uh, the other day, and and we've kind of been using this is, you know, everyone talks about how the poop hit the fan. And I said, well, no, the the fan went to the poop. Yeah. Um, You know, there, there, there was no waiting and we're taking the same approach. I mean, we're full speed ahead. We've got families to feed. We are uh, not doing any layoffs. So we're trying to get through this without any layoffs, without any furloughs. Um, You know, everyone's taking some pay cuts. 
Yeah. But we're going to survive, and I don't think my great-grandfather or my mom or anyone's ever laid anyone off in the history of the Great Depression or any of the other stuff that we've been through. So, you know, we're doing our best to keep our head above water, keep our uh, employees engaged, and, um, you know, keep money in their pocket so we can get through this. That's incredible. That truly is incredible. Do you have like a guru that's the coronavirus kind of head that's in charge of taking in as the rules are being updated and then distributing? That's you. So that you, you yeah. hear about it and then how, how do you distribute it out so that people can, you know, react by the hour? So we, uh, we use Facebook Workplace has turned out to be probably the greatest tool in our arsenal right now for communicating with our employees. In fact, we did a Facebook Workplace Sunday night at uh, 5 30 with all the employees because, you know, the rules were changing on Sunday. And then we did another one, um, I think Monday at, at like 10 30 because the rules changed again. So, you know, the Facebook workplace has been huge for us. We were actually one of the beta testers on it, uh, that helped develop it. Yep. And, um, it has been our line of communication with our employees because it's, it's, it's internal. So there's, it's not going out to the world. Right. But we're able to do live sessions, um, go over the information, take Q&A, and address everything, you know, right on the spot so that there's no rumors floating around about what's going on or, you know, I heard this or I heard that. Yep. So, so with, with regards, I know that some are appointment only, some is online. Um, can, do you have a figure of like, has demand actually fallen off uh, despite all the channels and, and how far off are you kind of within just two weeks of this kind of starting? Well, you know, the, the easiest way to look at is probably our uh, lead performance. We, we run a business development center. So, mm -hmm. you know, our leads are down probably 25% since this thing has uh, kicked in and developed. Um, retail sales are not quite down 25%. You know, we're probably in the 15% range. Yep. But, you know, 15% is a large number of, you know, of one of these monsters that has, you know, a lot of expenses. For sure. Has the government put out anything that uh, car dealerships will be part of the bailout package or is there any relief that you're hearing about or anything? Uh, yeah, from what I understand, um, we're part of the general package. Yep. Um, there's nothing carved out specific for car dealers, you know, like the cash for clunkers that existed, uh, back, uh, during was that 2010, I think when yep. that, when the world fell apart. Yep. So I don't think there's a specific, you know, cash for clunkers program, but, um, you know, anyone, I think we're, we, we fall under the under 500 employee deal. So we will apply the, the laws get applied to us just like they do all the other good small businesses out there. Right. Is, is there anything you've noticed besides the fact that people can't get out of their house uh, like they could in 08? Is there a difference between now and 08? I remember you kind of telling me this isn't your first rodeo through a downturn. Uh, anything you've already noticed differently? Um, yeah, because you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, in 08, everyone felt it and knew it, right? right. It, this deal, there's still people that don't believe this thing exists. I'm like... Are, are, are you kidding? <laughs> and then, and then you're dealing with employees. So, so you've got people that don't believe it exists. And then you have people that believe that everyone has it. Yep. And so, you know, you're dealing with this wide ranging of emotions with clients and with employees. And, you know, you have to be extremely understanding of both sides of it to, um, you know, get through it. Yep. Um, your employees that are, you know, afraid and don't want to come to work, you know, you, I, I understand and, you know, we'll be here when you feel better and you're ready. 
you know, under normal conditions, you'd be like, well, you don't have a job, you know? (laughs) So, you know, you just, you just, you just got to change with it. And that's why I said, they keep moving the goalposts every six hours and we're fine. Yep. And, um, I'm, you know, I, when, when this kind of started coming down, I, I was the general manager of the Cadillac store and also the general sales manager. And as soon as I started seeing this come down, I, immediately stepped out of that position and said, if we're going to get through this, someone's got to be dedicated to this Corona deal. And I can't be asking my general managers to run their dealerships. And Oh, by the way, I want you to handle all the Corona stuff. So that's when I stepped right into the Corona role, took all the responsibility on me. So I'm making all the calls about, you know, meeting with the teams, but you know, how are we treating sales? How are we doing employees? You know, we came out with an early retirement program as opposed to laying people off which is not the smartest thing to do because that burns cash, but it's the right thing to do when you have tenured employees. I mean, we have, well, has that been well-received? Has it been rolled out yet? Yeah, we, uh, so we rolled it out, uh, two days ago and, um, I think it's been extremely well-received by the employees. You know, everyone's expecting layoffs and all that. And we don't do, you know, like I said, we haven't done layoffs. And so we put a very generous package out there based on 10 years, started with everyone that's been with us eight years. Um, or longer, and there's a formula tied to it. And, um, you know, there's some employees with some pretty hefty checks, and some of them are opting to stay, which is awesome. You know, we don't want to get rid of anyone, but some people are, you know, they were like, you know, I was going to retire, and this is the most generous thing I've ever seen. So, you know, they're getting, there's a silver lining in it for those employees. So, yeah. you know, it, we're, we're just, we're working our way through it, and, you know, it changes every day. Yep. Uh, you've said that people are buying cars online and if you just kind of watch, uh, you know, what's going on in all types of industries, there's a lot of people saying that, you know, this type of, uh, world event will kind of show humanity that a lot more can be done, you know, online and through mobile than just face to face or showing up. Uh, do you have any kind of thoughts on how this could change the car buying process down the road? Or do you think it's business as usual once this thing goes away? No, I think it, um, I've told my team when we started going into this, I said, if we don't come out of this, a better company than we went into it, then I have failed as your leader. Yep. And so we have, that is what we are solely focused on. And it is, this is making us a significantly better company. Yeah. We, we, we have all these technology tools, you know, because yep. we sign up for all this stuff, but no one's really been forced to use it or do it. Yep. And now, you know, we've got a significant portion of our workforce that's working from home. And when I first brought the idea up to some of my team members, you know, when this was first going down, they were nervous, like, Oh my God, how are we going to do it? I'm like, you got to figure it out. You know, I mean, here are the tools and now we're doing it and people are like, oh my God, this is great. So I think that, you know, that doesn't completely answer your question. I'll get to that. I mean, I I think that we will, um, I think customers will trust the buying process maybe a little bit more as a result of this. But I think as companies, I think we'll be a lot better company. And I think we're going to learn that, you know, I, I think, in my opinion, we our work life balance as a society was way out of whack before this. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you're guilty of it, Chris. Yep. I'm guilty of it. I mean, all of our friends are guilty of it, right? Yeah. And, and I think that this is proving that we can. There's a way to bring that work life balance back. Yep. And and I think that's one thing that we'll get through all this. Is it? You know, we, we, there's a way to make, to make it work, to get our work-life balance back, which will make us a better community, which makes us a better country. Yep. I love it. I've learned in two weeks that I can get this a, a lot more done, even in shorter periods of time when you're not 
you know, when you're not forced into, you know, an office situation where you have lots of meetings and people coming in and out of your office and you wonder why you're working, you know, till seven or eight at night sometimes. And a lot of it is there's just a lot of waste that happens during the day and being at home can create a lot of efficiencies or just kind of being mindful that there's, there is a way to get a lot done in a much shorter period of time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, um, you know, for you and I that have commercial real estate, <laughs> I don't know what it does for some of our office products yep. because I mean, I can see where, you know, we, we, this could, we, we could actually build a smaller dealership and still house the same amount of people. Yep. I think as a result of this. I mean, I, I've thought a ton about it and I probably should do just do an episode on my thoughts about real estate, even in the last two weeks. But yeah, I think we're going to learn really quick that we don't have a, uh, a lack of supply in this world. We have plenty of stuff already built. I think we just use it very inefficiently. And so yeah. we continue to build more and more and bigger and bigger. And, you know, th- this was already trending in that way, but this virus will continue to push it further in that direction is like, we don't need as much space as we thought we did. Um, the way we use space will change considerably, whether it was this virus or not, the, the trend was headed in that direction. And this is just going to push it there a lot quicker. Yeah, just threw some gas on it. Threw some gas on it. Um, how does a car dealership in normal circumstances, well, I guess even today, how the hell do you guys make money? I always hear they don't make money on the cars. They only make it on the service and this and that. And how does a car dealership make money? We don't, Chris. We're a charity. We got a steeple <laughs> out front and we are there to serve the greater human good. <laughs> Is way, that's the way it feels like. Um, you know, there's a significant amount of transparency in the business, which is fine, you know, but, you know, you, you can't go walk into a furniture store and say, well, I know that you paid uh, $200 for that couch. I'll give you 150 Yeah, It just doesn't fit, but it does in our world. And because if we don't do it, there'll be another dealer. So where do we make our money? The truth is, is we don't make money on the new car, on the front end piece of it. On the used car, we probably make four or $500. Yep. Um, on the new car side, the manufacturers have programs out there where if you can jump through this hoop and hold one leg, tickle your nose and eat a flaming arrow, <laughs> then you get, you know, you unlock this treasure chest, yeah. right? And so that's why, you know, people are like, well, then that's not, a substan- that's not a sustainable business model. Well, if we can click all those boxes, then there's a treasure chest of some cash there. Gotcha. And, that, and, and it's volume-based. So that volume-based behavior is what drives the pricing on the new car side. And the consumer is the winner of that because you, you've got to get that aggressive to get the car deals. And if you don't, you know, if you jump through five hoops, but you hit the sixth one with a toe, you're not unlocking the treasure chest. So right. you, you know, you kind of pulled a lot of that money forward and you don't get it. So, you know, the other, the other piece of it is the, uh, the banks will give us flats when we help customers finance the cars. Okay. Um, so there's money on the finance side of it. There's money on uh, the extended warranty side of it. Um, you know, extended warranties are great products. Our loss runs are around 65%. Yep. on a extended warranty. So that means 65% of the customers that are buying these things are maxing them out. So, you know, it's a good product, but there's, you know, there's still 45, you know, it's not 45% margin, but there's, you know, yep. there's that breakage there. Yep. Um, so, you know, that, that that's a good deal. Um, and then on the service side, yeah, you know, it is service is a big piece of it. The, the problem is, is service is getting more and more expensive because, 
techs are drying up and these cars, you know, the average car has like 15 computers in it, right? Yeah. So all of us have enough problem trying to get our one computer to work or our one iPhone. Right. Why don't we strap 15 of these <laughs> things together in a moving vehicle and get them to all talk and work together, uh-huh. right? So now you've got a, it takes a much different technician than we had in the past. Yep. So, um, but why yeah, are we that, running low on technicians because of how much it's changed and we just haven't trained enough people to kind of keep up yet? Uh, because there's this stigma that you're a grease monkey and you don't make any money. Right. Right. And I mean, we've got, we, we can, there's kids that are coming out of high school that, uh, go right into a, a program that we recruit out of in Arizona and they can go there for a year. So you can graduate high school, go to this program for a year and you can come out making about 50,000 a year. Wow. And our top technicians, they make six figures. Wow. You know? And so I, I don't think that story is being told enough out there yeah. because I think people hear that, oh, um, you know, if you go to a dinner party, what does your son do? Oh, he's a technician. Oh, really? What do you fail in life? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like being a car salesman. Oh, do you fail in life? Yeah. You know? No. You know, there's great money in it. You know, if, if you... If you go to a dinner party, oh, my son works at the Apple store. Oh, God, he's making 10 bucks an hour. He works at the Apple store. He's a king, you know? <laughs> so I, th- I think there's a perception issue that's tied around technicians. Yeah, I've um, been saying it for so uh, There is such an opportunity in the United States to make kind of that uh, behind-the-scenes tough work cool again because they're plumbing, painting, roofing. I mean, name anything in the construction industry there. It's not a social media manager. It's not a, you know, some sexy, glamorous job, but they are paying extremely well. And the cost keeps going up as the shortage of them continues. Yeah. I love it. Didn't you just go out to Phoenix recently or something? And and, and that was kind of that's what, like these schools that are going to start pumping out technicians that you can hire from. Yeah, absolutely. So we we go out to Phoenix uh, twice a year to recruit these uh, ladies and gentlemen. They're, they're in Phoenix, and so you're spending half the time telling them why Fort Worth is great or Corsican or Ennis because they're already in the automotive field. And then you gotta you know talk to them about why your dealership. So you know it, it's nice when you live in a great city and you have a good story to tell. You sat on a board for a few years. I can't remember exactly what it was called. The I think it was GM's national board or Cadillac. Which one is? Am I getting that? Am I totally botching yeah, that? Yeah. So I at at one time I was on five different boards, but the uh, all around general boards. But the two big ones were I was the chairman of the Cadillac Dealer Council. So there's ten people that are elected to represent all 950 Cadillac dealers, and of those ten, one is elected to represent the the ten or the nine because you're one of the ten. And so I was on that, and then when you get elected to that, then you're on the uh, GM dealer advisory group. So there's one representative from each uh, manufacturer. So one Chevy, one Cadillac, one Buick, one GMC. And then we meet with the heads of General Motors and talk about the dealer-specific issues at that level. What did that teach you? Like, what did you learn through that whole experience? I know it took a ton of your time. What'd yeah, you I mean, I, I, uh, well, I left with a uh, American Airlines Executive Platinum membership. <laughs> Um, so that, that's how much travel was, uh, constituted doing that. Um, you know, you, um, you, you, you learn, you know, being an independent entrepreneur and being your own company, you know, I'm not a part of a huge organization, right? 
And so you get to get into the into the belly of the monster and you get to see how one of these big companies runs. Um, you get to see how policies are made. Um, you get to see, I mean, there's a lot of ugly, I mean, you know, I, I, I've, the, the analogy I've told people is, you know, I got to see how sausage is made and I don't like to eat sausage anymore. Yep. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it, different companies have different cultures and a lot of that's driven by the ownership, right? So you go to someone like general motors and a board runs that thing, right? So you have like this Darwinistic uh, deal where everyone wants to try and climb to the top. And right. so they'll be your friend, but if they need to get to the top, they'll just step right on your head. And that's not just at General Motors. That's that's littered through the corporate world, right? right? And then you go to a company like Ford, where it's owned by Bill Ford. There isn't anyone working for Ford that thinks they're going to take Bill Ford's job. Right. So it's just two completely different mindsets based on the ownership. Is one is is one better than the other? You know, they're just. I, I can give you pros and cons to both. Yeah. Um. So it, it, it's just like I said. I, I've been blessed enough to get into the belly of the beast and see how different companies are run. Because you know, being a small entrepreneur on the west side of Fort Worth, you you know, you're only exposed to yourself. Right. Um. So it, it, it's extremely fascinating to see how these big companies are run. Coming out of this, which we will get out of this, are there any silver linings or things that you kind of hope to see in the future because of what we're experiencing today or things that might make the automotive industry better or things you hope see go away or, you know, what's the positive that's going to come from all this? I think the story that's not being told right now is that they're and it's hard, right? You know, people are dying. We don't have it under control. Yep. But I think there is going to be an enormous amount of positive stuff that comes out of uh, this situation. Um, like I said, I think I think we'll get work-life balance uh, back more in balance. I think we'll learn that we can do more stuff at home. Yep. Um, I think that we will value family more. Um, you know, for my son, who's 10 years old, you know, we've sat down and had a couple of conversations about, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to look at some finances and this is a tough time. And you know, for a 10 year old, he, 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 life's been great for him. Right. We just had the largest bull market ever. Yep. So he's been like, man, this, isn't it always like this? So, you know, I think it, it, it's been great to help level set him and like, you know, the music can stop and yep. it can stop on a dime, you know? So that's been positive. Yep. Um, you know, it's really pulled our teams together. I think we're working better together. You know, as a society, I think we'll be more understanding, you know, there, there's some, I think altruistic may be the right word, but I mean, I just, I think we'll be as a country, I think we'll be better off for it. Um, but I'm not saying that this was the right thing to do to get us there. Please. I'm not, you know, but I mean, I, in my world, my glass is half full and I'm always smiling and we're kicking ass and trying to find the positive. I was going to say of, of a lot of the people that I know, you are the first to find the silver lining in almost everything. So I knew that would be an important question for you. Yeah, I, uh, the, the, I, I, uh, the, uh, Miranda Lambert has a song and it's, he says that if love gives me lemons, I'm going to, I'm going to put the lemon in my drink. So there you go. I love it. The news that came out today and, you know, I don't know how much you know or can talk about it, but there was supposed to be a billion dollar acquisition of a car dealer today that fell through. Uh, is do you do you expect M and A in the uh, car world to 
to change? Are there other deals that are put on hold that you know of? Is there any kind of activity or is it just everything's on hold? I think everything's on hold for now uh, until the dust settles. Yeah. But I think once the dust settles, I think you'll see a significant amount of M&A. Yep. Um, I think you've got a lot of people that were on the sidelines. Should I sell? Should I not sell? You know, and if they if they've been in the business, you know, they went through 2010, and now 10 years later, we've got the coronavirus. That you know, and if you're later in your life, 60s, 70s, and you don't have anyone to pass this thing on to, um, you know, you you may just be like, hey, let me get this thing back up on its feet, get the economy back, and I'll let someone else have this fun. So I, I think you'll see a significant amount of M and A perk up. Uh, I think the multiples uh, multiples may stay the same, but the multiple. The, the multiple number, the the multiplier may stay the same, but the denominator, obviously, because profits will be down, will the overall transaction price will be less. But I think the multiples will stay, you know, in the same world they've been living. Is there anything in particular that you're looking for to know that the automotive industry is coming back? Is it foot traffic? Is it leads? Is it is there something from your distribution business that will tell you quicker than your dealerships will? Like, how will you know things are kind of back in action? For me, it's going to be when the uh, stay at home is lifted. Yeah, and then we'll be, you know, it'll we'll, we'll be back at it. I mean, there's there's been a lot of job loss, you know, and and, and that's hard on everyone. Um, but I think a lot of that loss will be, you know, uh, a lot of restaurants laid off, like all their staff and all that. Mm-hmm. And you know, but as soon as we are allowed to go back out of our houses, I mean, all those jobs get sucked right back up. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those people that get laid off, depending on how long this goes, I mean, they could be in a pretty significant hole financially, yep. you know, and it, and it may take them a while to dig out. But I think that as soon as we get, um, as soon as we kind of get the all clear button, I think we'll be in a much better spot. But right now, there's just a significant amount of unknown and uncertainty and, you know, and, you know, when we have a couple of Cadillac dealerships and are you going to go spend $120,000 when you're not fully certain about, you know, what tomorrow is, Yep. you know, unless you're the guy or girl that owns a chemical factory pumping out these disinfectants, probably not, yep. you know? Yep. Kind of a question I, I wanted to ask you, uh, when we were originally, uh, when, when the, when I didn't know this is what we'd be talking about, but what makes a great car salesman? Why are the best the best in the car business, and why do car salesmen get kind of a not, not a bad rap, uh, but you know it's just kind of a you know a joke in the movies or whatever is like he's you know it's like a used car salesman or yeah. that guy could sell the shirt off your back uh, yeah but why do they get a bad rap and and how do, how do, how can we give two minutes of giving them a great rap because uh, the, the a really good salesman in a car dealership. One financially does really well, but there's clearly some things that make them great. Yeah, I think that you know the the bad rap. I think it was probably earned. You know, it was back in the days when there was a lack of transparency. Um, you know, things like Carfax didn't exist, so the car salesman might intentionally lie about a car just to sell a car. Yeah. You know, in today's world, that if you're dealing with a reputable dealership, you know they, they, that's really tough with all the tools that are out there. Yep. And in our world, if you're doing anything like that to a client, then you're fired immediately. So, um, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, back when leasing first came out, 
Um, Like I said, I think the industry earned it because consumers didn't understand what a lease was. They just came in and said, I want a $300 a month payment. And the guy's like, perfect. Here's a $300 a month payment. And then they try and trade out of it in three years. And they're like, well, you're in a lease and you're at 10,000 miles a year and you've driven 30,000. Like what, what, you know? So I think that we as an industry did some of that to earn it. And unfortunately, you know, it sticks with you. Um, and there's still, you know, a little shittiness out there, but 99% of it with the big dealer groups and stuff, I mean, it just, it, it doesn't exist. Now there are some bad actions that I see in the advertising world that some of these big companies are doing where they don't disclose all their fees and stuff. Right. Um, and so I think that continues to perpetuate the, um, the story, Yeah. you know? At, with us, you know, we disclose everything. We're haggle-free on pre-owned cars. You know, we're trying to, we try and put ourselves as the consumer, but there's still some of that crap out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but, you know, what makes a good um, a salesperson is, you know, Chris is, is no different than I think any business of selling, you know, they find a way to connect with the customer. They have great follow through. They're very professional. Yeah. Um, you know, they 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 when you immediately start talking to them, you're that you're able to build trust with the client. Yep. Um, you know, it, it it it's I don't care if it's cars, widgets, or whatever. It it it's the same. There really is no differentiator. I think in the car business, in my opinion, um, the beauty of the car business though is that everyone you know, for the most part, ninety eight percent has an automobile. Yep. Right. But if I'm selling like some particular widget, you know, my funnel of clients may only be 15%. Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's, so yeah, I think you have greater opportunity to sell more product um, if you're in the car world. And then that works off your referral tree. You know, if you're buying a, I don't know, I mean, just pick some, if you're buying a golf cart, you know, if you're a golf cart salesman, well, hell, not everyone needs a golf cart. Right. You know? Yep. So, why do the car dealers continue to send postcards in the mail with like a, a key to your dream car? Are those effective? I mean, when I think of a postcard in the mail, I'm like, car dealers <laughs> car dealers hammer my mailbox with these postcards. Clearly, they still go on because they're effective. How effective are they? Well, we don't do them. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I brought general managers on that have wanted to do them. Now we have done, you know, we, we, we've used direct mail in the past. We Cadillac store. I mean, we, we send out service coupons, right? Yeah. But as far as the, you know, this car, this key could start your car and all that. I mean, Chris, there's a certain segment of the population that that is highly effective on, Yep. you know, and it, and it's done to bring them in and to start the conversation. And the next thing you know, they're, you know, they needed to buy a car or wanted to buy a car, you know, and then there's a certain uh, part of the population that they just come in to, you know, see if their key works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> in college, oh, I have to admit that was me at one point. I got a postcard from somebody that sent me a fake yeah. key and it was like, come and, you know, you'll get something and you can drive the car and, you know, whatever you could leave here with a few, uh, with no payments or whatever. And I took the key in and I didn't end up buying anything, but it got me there to, to yeah. piggy off that. How, uh, how often does somebody show up to a dealership? Like if, if you go to Walmart and, or Target and you're walking through, you might put some extra things in your cart. You had no intention of buying. 
Like how often does somebody show up to a dealership that's maybe they're just browsing or trying to blow some steam and look at what's new and then two hours later they leave with a brand new or with a new car? I mean, is it something that most people prepare for for a long time or is a lot of it just like, you know, in the moment they make the instinctual decision and and get their car and, and move on? Well, you know, I, I think the 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 general conception in the marketplace is that going to a dealership is like going to the dentist to get a root canal. Yeah. So, you know, my wife loves Target and she likes to go to Target to relax and fill her, her shopping cart. Yep. So, you know, uh, most people that show up to a dealership, they're here for a reason. Yep. Right. I mean, they're, 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 they're in the market or they're trying to get a question answered or there's something there. There's very few, you know, especially where we're located, you know, maybe if we were in, um, somewhere like in South beach or, you know, and we had a, uh, a little kiosk or something, we might get that impulsive individual. Right. Yep. But for us, you're making a concerted effort to drive over here. So it's not, you know, it, it's not like you're in Vegas and you just happen to stop in at the Cartier store and it's like, ah, oh, perfect. You know, my wife's been, you know, you need to just do it. Yep. Not, we don't, we don't get a whole lot of the impulsiveness because it's really the, the, the largest purse purchase the average American makes is their house and their second it's their car. car. And so they, they do seem to put some thought into the car. Yep. Yeah. The only, it might, I guess it just came from a, you know, so many times you can leave with like zero down and no payments. And it, even though it's a big purchase, it can be bought in a way that it doesn't feel like a big purchase for a couple months. And so I didn't know if there was anybody that, you know, they took advantage of the deals and, you know, we're out, woke up on a Sunday, didn't know they were getting a car. And by the end of the day, they got a car. I think there may be a little bit of that, you know, but they, you know, they, they, they came with a mild intention and yep. all we needed to do was fan the flame. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and there are people that come in and, you know, let me look at this base, this, and the next thing, you know, they're like all happy and they're buying, you know, they're, they're buying way more than they thought that they were going to purchase yep. or the program was better and they got more than they thought they could get. And they're ecstatic. Yep. So, all right, I'm going to bring it home in a, in, in the next five, 10 minutes. I, I said we were going to stick to automotive, but the more I think about it, you have some good insight. The restaurant and food and beverage industry is clearly right now on life support. Um, mm -hmm. They've been ordered by the government to shut down um, it's scary as hell. You happen to be a part owner in one of the most successful restaurants in Fort Worth, which, you know, gives you comfort. I couldn't imagine if you were already barely surviving and now this has happened, but can you just kind of shed some light on, you know, we'll talk about, um, Heim, the, our barbecue restaurant, uh, your barbecue restaurant with Travis and Emma, um, and your family. What are you seeing and hearing, not just about Heim, but in general? And can you shed any light there? Well, the, the restaurant industry has been decimated by this. Um, so currently, we can uh, sell food to go for curbside pickup or delivery, but you know, no clients are allowed inside the restaurants. So we've, we're dealing with it with uh, Heim, and then we also have uh, four brewery and pizza right. uh, on Magnolia. So, you know, Heim was, um, you're just, you're seeing restaurants laying 50, 60, 70, 80% of their people off. Yep. And, and that's just tough to see, you know, at Fort, we're doing our best not to 
lay anyone off. Um, but we're one of those situations you were discussing that, you know, we weren't kicking on all cylinders beforehand. Yep. And so this is, you know, you're, you're having to make a conscious decision about what to do. Um, and we're, we're modifying our business model daily. I mean, we never had curbside pickup yep. and, you know, take, take the brewery. I mean, we came out with a quarantine package that we're doing. We just launched today. We just launched take and bake. You know, for five bucks, you can, I mean, that, that wasn't in our repertoire. I mean, it's just like, I am spending more creative juices in those restaurant areas on how do we break through the clutter? You know, at Heim, we sold all of our uh, fresh uh, meat on Saturday because yep. we had all this, uh, all these briskets that we were, you know, for a normal week. Yep. And so you're just, Right now, it is hand-to-hand combat. The rules are off. I mean, you know, you're allowed to deliver alcohol to someone. You know, they can come by and pick up a drink. Now, you know, in a closed container, but I've seen pictures of other restaurants online, and there are no closed containers. I mean, it is like the Wild West. Yep. So, um, and it's straight-up survival mode, you know. If, If there's any ramifications, then if you survive, we'll deal with them then. But right now, it's about trying to keep your employees you know, trying to pay bills, dealing with, you know, landlords that are helping with rent. Um, we had one of our tenants uh, just before I got on this phone that's like, we can't pay you rent. I mean, it, it, and, and it's a big company in uh, Fort Worth Yep. Um, that's got multiple locations. It's not Heim. Yep. And um, they're like, we're, we, we're, we can't pay you rent. And so we're, as a landlord, having to work with the uh, retail clients to try and help, you know, figure out solutions. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it's everywhere and it, it's tough, but you just got to get creative. How many of these restaurants and kind of like, do you think will just go out of business and then not come back? Um, you know, do you have any opinion on that? I mean, the longer this goes, I mean, the average restaurant, I think you ever had anywhere from 16 to 27 days of cash. If you were just kind of a, I yeah. don't want to call you an, I don't want to demean anybody by saying an average restaurant, but, but no. businesses that yeah. were just, you know, barely making it. I mean, are they ever coming yeah. back again? And is the government in this bailout package giving anything to these people? Uh, you know, from what I understand, the the bailout package is to help with uh, employees and benefits and rent. Yeah. Um, you know, most landlords are helping on the rent piece of it. So the the bail the the bailout package will help. The the question I think is is how much damage is done before. I mean, you you know, I know that anything that comes from the government. I mean, it's not like it comes out today. You go click five boxes and the check is tomorrow. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it could take thirty forty five days before you get your first payment. And you know, the, these uh. I think the carnage is going to be intense. And I use the word carnage. I I think there's 40% plus. I I wouldn't surprise me a bit. How, uh, and and even with all the curbside delivery and people picking up food, uh, I would imagine revenues are down 50% plus. Uh, Uh, We're we're down probably 66%. Wow. And that's in two weeks. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just in two weeks, Chris. It's like overnight. I mean, yep. literally, we've been down from the time the, the, the fan went to it. I mean, it was like 60. It wasn't like we went, you know, 40, 45. It, no, it, it's been like 66 and boom. Mm, golly. Oh, 
It's chilling. It's, 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 it's like breathtaking. It's the government is shutting down businesses and it's not, again, it's not like they want to do this, but it is a mandate and, and how much longer it can go on before everybody's not tits up is, is the scary thing to think about. Yep. But you know, in, in fairness, in my opinion, and you and I may differ on this, but I mean, it, if we want to kick this thing's ass, which we have to do, yep. we've got to, the, the, what they're doing is I think the right thing. I think they should shut the whole country down, but you yep. know, they're letting the States handle it. Yep. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's the right call. I mean, yeah, it's painful. It's bloody. Um, you know, but it, it's the alternative. I think, you know, I, this is a very controversial statement. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, if baby. you look at the, well, if you look at the whole flatten the curve thing, right. Yeah. Um, it, which is what everyone's talking about. Flatten the curve, flatten the curve. Well, if you look at flatten the curve, it takes this thing from about two months to five or six months. Yep. Okay. If you don't flatten the curve, you're going to kill a bunch of people, but you're probably done in about a month and a half. Yep. And I'm not saying I'm a proponent of not flattening the curve, but you could make arguments on either side of it. I think flattening the curve is right because it's going to, you know, it keeps the, 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 you're trying to get the curve in line with our hospital capacity, right? Yep. And this doesn't need to be like the, the meteor that hit the earth and killed all the dinosaurs. You know, that's For not sure. what we're trying to do. But I mean, it's just you. I always look at everything and you could make an argument the other way. And I mean, daily, the the sentiment is changing. I mean, the longer people are out of work, you're already starting to see a lot in the media of like, what's the value of a human life and how much damage are we willing to do to save X amount of people? And, you know, even flattening the curve is like, it's not going, it's not going to be gone is like now at what point I was telling Johnny earlier, it's like, it seems weird at this point to even imagine myself in like a really busy area, like a restaurant or a concert. Like that just seems even in two weeks, like I can't wait to be out with a ton of people, but it would, it's like, it seems so foreign and and distant. Yeah. I kind of went off on a tangent there. I I don't know where I quite fall on it. Um, You know, being in real estate and the, the network that I have, I, I understand that the economic impact it's already made. It's it's unreversible at this point. Even if we could hit a switch and all this went away, the the momentum towards a, a recession and uh, economic harm is already on its way. Now it's how quickly can we reverse it? And yeah, it becomes a tougher question to ask each day is like, what is the, the best thing to do for the long term? And um, I'm confident that the American people will innovate, find opportunity, create a vaccine, create things to stop it. And I hope it comes quick. I mean, it's been amazing how quickly you've seen the world react in just two weeks. Tesla's making ventilators. GM and Ford are now making ventilators. Scientists are working 24-7. I'm very optimistic, but it's hard to it's hard to watch each day go by. It feels like each day is like a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the, the rules change every day so much that it <laughs> It's just this elongated ordeal. All right, my man. Um, this has been super interesting. I know you're on the front lines. Your attitude about everything is uh, is awesome. Um, you're naturally an optimist, and uh, you will be, you know, continuing to lead both the 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 dealerships and the food and beverage out of this. I know we'll be talking a ton. Um, 
and I mean, you know, I just wish you nothing, nothing but the best as we continue to make it through this. Man, I, I appreciate you for inviting me. It was an honor to be on your podcast. I know you got a ton of followers, and the fact that you want some little chump from the west side of Fort Worth <laughs> is flattering. So, um, I, it's, it's an honor, man. You're you're an awesome individual. You're doing great things. I'm just proud to be a little part of it. Thank you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon, and uh, thank you again. You got it. Bye, Willie. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.